Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Ask God these things. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that particular red telephone is not necessarily available to me. I know it's not. I've got, and if we live to I've be three hundred, Danny, would... that's why I'm checking in with you. Since you ask so brilliantly, yeah, that's what it was. It was gorgeous and spectacular. It was like you were opening up. I'm Jesse Thorne. That was Danny Fields. He was describing what it was like to go from a Harvard Law student to being one of the earliest members of Andy Warhol's factory in the early 60s. Danny spent decades in the music business, helping shape the careers of artists like The Doors, Nico, Lou Reed, and the Ramones, who he actually managed for a while in the 70s. They were so fully formed, the Ramones were, that there was no... No artistic contribution I could have made, and had there been the need for one, I would not have been interested in working with them. They actually ended up writing a pretty good song about him, too. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Danny Fields. His first job in the music business was as an editor for a teen magazine that covered pop music. At one point, he ran a front-page quote with John Lennon saying, He didn't know what would go first, Christianity or the Beatles. After record burnings and death threats by the KKK, the band decided they may be better off not touring. Years later, someone pointed me to a quote made by Yoko in one of her memoirs, saying, John always used to say, when I think how much I owe Jesus and the KKK for getting me out of that damn puppet show or something, when he referred to the Beatles with great contempt. So I'm glad to have been part of that. We'll talk about how he learned to fit into Andy Warhol's factory crowd, why he decided to take a chance on signing the MC5 and the Stooges to Elektra Records, and how he passed the long hours sitting in the studio, the Ramones. Then later, guest correspondent Keith Powell will talk to Emmy-nominated actress Judith Light about her role on the Amazon series Transparent. She'll tell us why a show about something as specific as gender transition can resonate with such a broad audience. The content of the show is about the transgender community. The larger context is to talk about family and how families relate to each other. And I'll tell you why nostalgia, it's done with the right touch, can be a great way to pass a Sunday afternoon. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When Danny Fields was 15 years old, he left home for an Ivy League school. He graduated from Penn, he went to Harvard Law, and he very quickly realized that he wanted something more. He couldn't exactly put his finger on what it was or how he would get it, but he knew he wanted excitement, the kind he wasn't going to get from following in the footsteps of his parents or his parents' friends. He left Harvard for New York, found an apartment in Greenwich Village, and started hanging out at Andy Warhol's factory. He worked for a teen magazine for a while, where he got his first taste of the music industry, covering bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. 
He ended up the head publicist at Elektra Records, and he helped shape the careers of The Doors, Judy Collins, and Nico. He signed two of the most influential bands of the 70s in one day. They were the MC5 and the Stooges. And for a while, he was the manager of the Ramones during the height of their fame in the late 1970s. In other words, he witnessed and helped create one extraordinary event after another, carving out the path he wasn't even sure how to find when he left Harvard. And he definitely ended up finding the excitement he was looking for. Danny, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you for wanting to talk to me, and I've always wanted to talk to you. Well, I want to start. Uh, I want to start with like the early part of your life. It's something that in the film is breezed past because you know you're you're only making a two hour movie and you got to deal with uh, MC Five and the Stooges and the Ramones okay. and Jim Morrison and okay. Andy Warhol and so on and so forth. But you went away to college when you were fifteen years old. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you go away to college when you were 15 years because old? Because I graduated from high school. Well, I mean, we didn't have grand tours then because what do they call interstice year or interstellar year? Yeah, one of the Mo- is Malia the is taking do. one of those right now. Yeah, but even then, uh, I don't know. I graduated from high school. There's no place for me to go but to college. So I went to college. What was it like to be in college? And you went to a great college. You went to Penn. Um, as, uh, you know, I mean, when you're 15 years old, you're still in many ways a kid. Like the difference between 15 and 18 or 15 and 19 is so huge. Well, I guess on average in the human race, it is huge for me at that point. You know, you got to, this is New York. So you automatically add two years. So whoops, I'm 17. Um, by definition, and then you add a little bit more because I was always a little bit smarter or got better marks, not smarter. When you started college, did you already think of yourself as gay or as, I guess, homosexual or however, you know, whatever word you chose at the time? Uh, I didn't have a name for uh, what I thought was beautiful and desirable and sexy I mean, unless you say, okay, there's, you know, four different colors you could be as a human. Which one are you? Pick one of the above. Okay, I could do that. But not fill in the blank, you know, what kind of human are you? Did you have some kind of vision for your life or were you just kind of being swept along by the fact that you had good grades? I was swept along. I had a wanting to be a madman moment, that kind of life with martinis kind of life. And that became tiresome. There's only so much you can get out of that fantasy. But it was just nice to think of. Well, it seems like that must have been, like, almost within grasp for you. I mean, like, you were, you know, you went off to Harvard Law School. And, you know, I saw a picture of you in the movie wearing a wearing a nice Ivy League suit. You look like a million dollars. Thank you. <laughs> A million dollars then, you know what that would have been. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. But at some point, you know, you you got off of at some point you got off of that path pretty decisively. I did not. Um I look like a million dollars <laughs> now. Not the looking like a million dollars path. Oh, okay. The blonde wife in a martini oh, path. Uh yeah, it wasn't a path. 
Because, you know, what options do you have? That's why it's so much better now. It's almost too better. Because what options did you have if you were from a professional family, that college-educated parents, and there was nothing that had a name that I wanted to be or do? There are no names. There were no names, and the best things have no names. Were you worried because there wasn't a thing with the name that you wanted to be? Because you didn't just think, I'm going to be an accountant and get rich being an accountant? Well, it was clear that I was not going to be an accountant. And most of the worrying was done by my parents and their friends or people who might end up with a disastrous son like I was who didn't want to own a drugstore like his father did, okay, or be a dentist. How did you end up moving to New York? I ran through a great deal of money at Harvard Square and <laughs> dropped out of Harvard Law School because it was, it was like a full-time thing. Who would have thought school would be a full-time thing? It was always so easy for me. I'd memorize the textbook and get an A. These were, and these are the 500 of the smartest people of some pool of civilization or something that were there. Wanted to be lawyers. God. I mean, would you not run screaming from a place like that? I don't. Danny, I absolutely cannot relate. I went to UC Santa Cruz. Yeah, there's no, <laughs> I know. So you're talking to a Northeastern uh, middle-class Jew. But this is when I got back to New York. Fortunately, my parents lived at a distant stop on the A train. And I could pretend to go to NYU. Um and I couldn't go there, and it was like going to toy school again. And you take a few classes, and you have a master's degree in Middle English or something. And then you get a job, and then I get an apartment in Greenwich Village. So there my life began once for real at Harvard, and then again in New York. So those are my two birthdays. It must have been a pretty extraordinary birth to be jumped into Greenwich Village as a, whatever, 20 or 21-year-old. Yes, great. It was great. And, and, that was, and that was the beginning of everything. And that's where we are in the early 1960s, and it's the birth of the civilization that was, for all of us, the defining civilization, which would be the last third of the last century. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Danny Fields. He spent years in Andy Warhol's factory scene before becoming a publicist, A&R man, and eventually the manager of the Ramones. There's this moment in the movie where you are describing the first moments that you're in with the sort of broader Andy Warhol factory crowd as it's beginning to constitute itself. And you describe realizing what you had to do to, if not belong there, at least get by. And that uh, was... attitude you should wear. Yeah. Okay. I know the famous Warhol story where uh, Ivy Nicholson was going to jump out a window and I was sitting near her and... I was worried that she was going to jump out the window, and so I pulled her back in. And, and then afterwards, Auntie said to me, oh, you should have let her jump. 
and I'm stricken with, that was not cold rescuing a jumper sitting in front of me. I know how it looks when you first see me saying that. It's heartless and brutal. Oh, my God. Oh, who are these people? They have no heart. You know what? He knew her really well. He knew she wasn't going to jump. He knew she'd never jump. He knew her really well, that she wasn't going to jump, and that wasn't serious, and I didn't really save her life. You got into the music business through your work as a teenage fan journalist. Not a journalist. Uh, I was an editor. A journalist goes, this is my problem. So I got fired. Okay. I was an <laughs> editor. I was, you, get fi- you got fired a lot. I always got fired. It was the mark of pride. And I was always fired. Yeah, I'm proud of it. When did you decide or realize that these skills that you had from being an editor, these connections that you had, um, could let you work in the music industry? Well, because I was working in the music industry because it was a fan magazine that was expanding because the publisher owned the magazine and started writing about the Beatles and saw that his readership was growing because there was coverage of the Beatles. Of course, I know we get to the point where John Lennon says we're more popular than Jesus. And which, which article you as editor, you're, you're the one that pulled the pull quote. Okay, let's talk about that because it's not quite uh, the way I see it. Okay, the publisher owned the interview and wanted to publish it. And, and I said... There are some lines in these things that, hey, if we put them on the cover and put them in a, in a block and made them rainbow-colored and just did, like, punchy quotes. And the line we pulled from John Lennon was, I don't know what will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Okay. That was the first quote on the cover of a magazine for 12-year-old girls. So then he was called to a press conference and you have to justify this blasphemy about Jesus and people are upset. If it had said we're more, uh, television is more popular than Jesus, I might have got away with it. <laughs> you know, but as I just happened to be talking to a friend, I used the word Beatles as a remote thing, not as what I think, as Beatles as those, those other Beatles like other people see us. I just said they are having more, in, more influence on kids and things than anything else, including Jesus. But I said it in that way, which is the wrong way. Yeah, well, yeah. Years later, someone pointed me to a quote made by Yoko in one of her memoirs, saying, John always used to say, when I think how much I owe Jesus and the KKK for getting me out of that damn puppet show or something, when he referred to the Beatles with great contempt. So I'm glad to have been part of that. The interview with this inflammatory blasphemy in it was published in London months and months before in a daily newspaper and sunk without a trace. No one cared what John Lennon said about Jesus in England. And they cared about it a lot here, enough to um, provoke Klan rallies and death threats. And they thought that was it. So they started, they performed for the last time ever, 50 years ago, probably, uh, 
this summer, let's say, August, late August, I think. It must have been it must have been quite a lesson for, you know, your your later years when you worked with the Stooges and MC five and when you worked with the Ramones in the power of literal or not literal blasphemy in rock and roll. I just think of it as making a little mischief. Not blasphemy. You used to get burned at the stake for blasphemy. By the power of humor. The power of profoundly funny. Okay, which I think of all those people you described were to me, starting with the Velvet Underground and uh, and the Stooges and everyone I worked with. That's what I liked. And the Ramones, of course, were so extremely funny and smart. When you saw the MC5 and the Stooges, yeah. what did you think was exciting about them? Well, I thought the MC5, uh, they were loud, flashy, and popular, and uh, you could dance to them. <clears throat> okay. Two days later, I saw the Stooges for the first time, and what did I love about them was their music, and you could dance to them, and that they had a lead singer who was one hell of a dancer, and music that was astonishing. So that's what I thought. But you know, you think so much. You think, oh my God, this could be very big, or everyone in the world is going to love it because I do. I have gone wrong many times, and I think I'm famous not only for being fired, but for going wrong. Or at that particular moment, no one was quite ready for the Stooges, except the Stooges. They didn't, they thought they were right on time. And I did too. But the rest of the world didn't, so. I'm Jesse Thorne. Imagine packing for a work trip, knowing that you're going to be looking after one of the most infamous pop stars in the 1960s in Hollywood. What goes in the suitcase? After a break, my guest Danny Fields will tell me about a few things that went into his when he was on tour with Jim Morrison. Needless to say, they weren't, strictly speaking, legal. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org. And NPR. Support for NPR and the following message comes from Bad Seed Records and Cobalt Label Services with Nick Cave and the Bad Seed's new album, Skeleton Tree, available now 
The recording of their 16th studio album is documented in the Andrew Dominic film One More Time with Feeling. And the result is a collection of songs that are a raw and true testament to an artist searching for his way through the darkness of loss. Skeleton Tree CD and vinyl LP, available now on Amazon. Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. The suggestions in NPR One are hand-curated to help you find the best from public radio and beyond. News, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One is ready to make a trip, waiting in line, or waiting for a friend better. Find NPR ONE on your app store. I'm Barbara Gray. I'm Brandy Posey. And I'm Tess Barker. We're Lady to Lady. Do you want to sleep over in your ears? Is that a friend in your pocket, or are you just podcast to see me? We're a portable hangout you can bring to the gym, on the subway, or on an oil rig. Seriously, we have listeners who do that. Show with us while we get high with Margaret Cho. Talk showgirls with Katya from Drag Race. And hear Broadway star Anthony Rapp sing Hamilton. I am not throwing away my shot. (laughs) I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. That's Lady to Lady. Can you keep a secret? Neither can we. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to music publicist and one-time Ramones manager, Danny Fields. Do you ever regret that you signed and helped sign um, and managed iconic acts, you know, legendary, I'm speaking Uh in the cliches of the, like, a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame plaque, but, you know, truly great, epically spectacular bands were within your circle and and you helped make them happen. Um, but none of them were ones that like made you rich. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you ever wish? Do you ever wish that you, that you had like uh, used part of your powers to be, you know, Jimmy Iovine you or whatever? You have to use and... all your powers to be a power. And I wanted to do something, as I said, to make mischief and move on, and to really make money and be an important person that gets respect and all that and dinners in their honor and uh, big memorials and all that stuff. You have to stick with it. I'm not a stick with it. I'm a let's move on and see what's exciting this time around. See what's new. I always wanted to see what's new. Love what's old and see what's new. When you saw the Ramones for the first time, it was uh, it was like a fifteen or twenty minute show. Oh, not that long. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did they? You managed the Ramones for years afterwards. Did they present themselves to you as you know what they are in all of our hearts and minds? Were they a fully formed operation? They were so fully formed. Excuse me. They were so fully formed, the Ramones were, that I would not have – I don't like to manage anyone or think of managing them, which is a role. It is not a creative participation, okay, Uh, in a group effort. Uh, It's like sort of overseeing the roadies and the equipment budget and 
the schedule and all that, that's being a manager. So, But yes, I would not do it unless the artist was perfect. Perfect. And they were perfect in every way. There was no, no artistic contribution I could have made. And had there been the need for one, I would not have been interested in working with them. However, I did find many times I had my camera with me and I was with them and would take pictures because what the hell do you do in a recording studio if you're not making the record? It's the most boring thing in the world, the most boring place to be. But I had a camera and I could get good pictures because I was me. I was the manager with the camera. You know, I didn't make any music. <clears throat> I'm not proud of them. I'm proud of the, these pictures I got. I'm proud of how great these guys looked and how I got them. That's, that's really, I mean, I, I get swollen with pride um, when I talk about that because I didn't write any of the songs. I didn't perform them. I didn't be some people you could put on an album cover that people would say, wow, who are they? They look really cool. Um... I just took pictures. And they're all gone. That's so amazing. Then he says we gotta go. Gotta go to out of hope. But we can't go surfing close to twin and polo. Do you ever feel weird about the fact that you are, you know, your career was substantially, I mean, for, for, these, for these decades, certainly as a facilitator? You said it was a, as a role, not as a job, artistic yeah. contributor. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a, yeah. I think is okay. what you said. Do you ever feel sad about that, that it was, that your work was to you know, was to highlight others, to facilitate for others. Oh, did I want to be a teen idol myself? <laughs> I don't. I don't <laughs> well, like some of the been... perks that come with it, I guess. But then, Jesus, though, I mean, you know, it's like Frank Sinatra has a cold. The minute something goes wrong, the whole world sees it. Or you put on 25 pounds overnight, like Jim Morrison and, Whoops, who's the fatty in that picture? It's Jim Morrison, the big star. So you know what? Uh, it's a trade-off. <laughs> I, I'm kind of happy to be floating around the fringes. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's a good answer to your question. What part of all of this that you've done these past, you know, uh, coming up on 50 years? It are is you most- 50 years. It's not coming up. It was 50 years in... March, the, the the first my first job at Datebook Magazine was March 1966. Which part of it are you most proud of? The whole thing that has people I love in it part, <laughs> the part that's populated. You know, with your favorite Saturday night. Oh, I don't have those. Um, you know, amazing things, many. 
most amazing, and there are too many amazing ones to have a most. It's confusing. I know. I just, how could I say one thing and leave out anything else? I regret that. That would be my regret. I was like to ask, sum it all up, give us, you know. No. It was a great ride. It was great people. It was great people. People I maybe then would hope that I could be around my whole life. And that is a blessing, the biggest of all. Well, Danny Fields, I'm so grateful that you took the time to talk to me on Bullseye. Jesse, you got me to say things I never said sober. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's a whole other story. Um, well, there's a, there is, there's some question uh, based on my reading of the film about how much of uh, this uh, these decades you spent sober, given that at one point you describe uh, you describe a time in your life when you always carried a variety of drugs with you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we were social, and you never knew what the party was going to be about, or who <laughs> you would meet, or what you would need. No, I wasn't selling them. It's just like, what do I need to share? It's like, how many, what T-shirts are you bringing? Like a drug you know? Boy Scout, always be prepared. Be prepared. You know, he's a little kid, you know. But this is like part of your persona. And um, no big deal. It wasn't the main thing. It's, uh, listen, we know many people, I'm sure, for whom it was the main thing, is the main thing. It was not the main thing. But it was the thing. Well, Danny, thank you so much. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So I'm actually out on tour this week with my show Judge John Hodgman Live, or John Hodgman's show Judge John Hodgman Live that I'm on. We actually also taped an episode of Bullseye Live at the London Podcast Festival this week. That show airs later this month. So anyway, we have the opportunity to have the actress Judith Light on the show. So we asked our friend Keith Powell, you might know him as one of the stars of 30 Rock, to cover for me. Thanks so much to Keith and to Judith Light for being a part of our show this week. Take it away, Keith. Thanks, Jesse. I'm Keith Powell, filling in for Jesse Thorne. Our guest, Judith Light, has been playing memorable roles on television for over 30 years. She won two daytime Emmys for her role as Karen Wallach on One Life to Live, starred opposite Tony Danza for eight years in the hit sitcom Who's the Boss, and was nominated for a primetime Emmy for her role as Claire Mead, on Ugly Betty. In 2014, she joined the cast of the Amazon series Transparent, playing the role of Shelley Pfefferman, the matriarch of a family discovering that their father and her husband is transgender. Transparent returned to Amazon for its third season last Friday. Judith Light, it is so great to have you on this show. Welcome to Bullseye. Of course. I know that you've been asked a million times about your One Life to Live scenes. 
uh, the courtroom scenes. But I want to kind of start there mm-hmm. just because, you know, the idea of soap operas is kind of going away and how completely, you know, critical it was and, and the type of work that it involved at the time. So I'm going to subject you to asking you about the courtroom stuff again. Not a problem. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, what you have to know is that um, people say things to me like, well, you don't really want to be known for that or you don't want to, and, and people still remember and I love that they remember and it matters to me tremendously so I don't have any problem talking about it at all. It, and it was and it was a just to sort of just start off the 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 difficulty of it for me there were two things one was that I had done nothing but theater up until that point in time I had done one Kojak episode I think and that was my only television experience and then I had also arrived in New York after being being in repertory theater for several years and I got here and I sat down on my parents' living room sofa and I said, here are two things in my career that I am never going to do. One of them is a soap opera and the other one is a sitcom. So, so, so much for, so, so much for my, um, having my life work out the way I thought it was going to. Right. So anyway, um, and, and what happened was the, the, the soap came along at a time, um, in the process of my career where I uh, was thinking about getting out of the business. And I also Mm. was completely broke, and my unemployment was starting to run out. And it wasn't even a regular part. They asked if I would come in just to understudy for the day. That was it. And so it was even less – I felt even more diminished by by the whole process. And I said (laughs) to my agent, I said, no, no, I can't do this. She said, you have no money. She said – this is $350 for the day. I said, I'm there. <laughs> and and it, and it wasn't just because of that. I mean, I was really right on the verge. But I was also – I was intrigued at some level about my level of disdain mm-hmm. for that aspect of the business. I was intrigued about who I was and the way I was being in the world mm. and that I was diminishing other people's work without even knowing about it. And I was also intrigued because – I thought if I don't get out of the business, I want to see if there are other aspects of the business other than the theater where I might work, where I might reach more people. And so then they had me come in an audition and then they gave it to me. And it literally changed the course of my life. And, you know, some people might say, you know, change the course of my – the trajectory of my career and all of that. And a lot of people said to me it was a mistake – but I knew somewhere inside of me that it wasn't, that, that there was something else that I had to be learning from it because my context was beginning to be who was I as a human being? What was, the, what was my life? Why was I here? What was I here to do? And so it had less to do with a career than it had to do with shifting where I was coming from as a human being. And I started working on that show and it was remarkable. I began to the kind of respect that I had for everybody in that in that studio. I can't even begin to tell you how remarkable the shift was for me. And I came to appreciate it in a whole different way. It's Bullseye. I'm Keith Powell filling in for Jesse Thorne. Our guest today is the Emmy Award winning actress Judith Light. 
so you know you did the courtroom scene it was you know mm-hmm. um uh, it's a very famous 30 minutes of television where our you have to admit on the witness stand that you have led a secret life as a prostitute mm-hmm. and you did it all in one take um and all straight through which is unheard of now in my mind uh in television um and it won you two emmys uh, and then, of course, when that show was over, you moved on to right. Who's the Boss, which was a sitcom, actually. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, it, it's it's so interesting. The courtroom scene, you have to understand, There's it's only possible to do something like that because you have wonderful directors who are supporting you and an entire cast who has become your family and writers who have created a story for you that you have literally lived for a year and a half before you before the denouement happens so all of my friends who were my family and still to this day Bryn Thayer who played my sister on the show is mm-hmm. still like my sister and so the when you when you have that and Michael Storm and and mm. you know Tony Call and all these really wonderful actors Erica Slezak and had their presence there with me when you allow people to hold you support you buoy you up more things become possible and that's right. how that was possible and, and you build a family uh, that's exact that's exactly right And so then um, I met my husband on that show and he said to me, I think it's time for you to leave. And I didn't want to leave because I consider New York my home and I wanted to be here and I wanted to stay here. And I had a good job and I was making money and I felt comfortable and safe and all of that. And he said, I think we should move to California. And I said, why? I said, I don't drive. I don't don't want to be in California. I want seasons. I want – and he said, you're going to work there. And for several months after we got there, because I I did leave the soap, and um, I kept going up for these auditions, and you you know what this is like, and and, and I, I think you're talking about my life actually. I, I'm telling you, I mean, it's <laughs> in like, terms of the move to California, yeah. You go, go and you go up for auditions, and and I kept <laughs> yeah. going up for all these auditions, and I kept not getting anything. Yeah. And I, I said to Herb Hampshire, my manager, I said, "What is the problem? What is going on? Why am I not getting things?" Other than the fact that, you know, I was operating like a spoiled brat and expected to be given everything. Um, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, laugh. Yeah. You laugh. I mean, anybody <laughs> who doesn't laugh at that, you know, you sort of have to have a sense of humor about oh, yourself. And so, no, yeah. And, and, but also I, I said to him, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he said, you're going into the room and you're so angry and they're picking up your energy. And I said, I'm not angry. I'm not <laughs> angry. And he said, just, just saying – and so I'm, I'm just putting this out there. Just putting it out there. He said you have di- he said you have disdain for it. So I was going to back through the same cycle. Yeah. I obviously had not learned the lesson. Mm. I had not learned mm. the lesson that my soul was trying to teach me. Yeah. And so I was going through it all over again. Well, I got this script called You're the Boss. And I really liked it. And when I went in for the audition, I took what Herbert said to heart. And I had a wonderful experience. And I always had loved Tony Danza. And I just thought, you know, let let me put my best self forward to this. And I got it. And there was a whole other longer story around all of it. But 
I went in for the audition with Tony, and I just adored him. I thought, you can get off it about your position, about these kinds of things. This can change your life as well. Mm -hmm. And I learned more about comedy from Tony Danza than I had in all the years of repertory theater, all the comedies that I had done. I mean, he taught me about timing in the most amazing way. It's really true. He is a comic genius. Yeah. And he... He knows. He hears it. And it's music. Mm-hmm. And he is, of course, very musical. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I can hear music, too, and I can hear it. But I needed to practice it. Yeah. And he would tell me where I was off, and he would show me, and he would teach me. And it was, it was remarkable. Well, I think that that's what made the show so special, because the two of you danced really well with each other. Yeah. I mean, you really played off of each other very well. And your co- your comic timing really worked um, um, with each other. So I, I actually – I totally see now in the work, I totally see how that uh, – how, you know, that conversation happened. Yeah. He was my teacher. He was my teacher. And that's why at the end of eight years, instead of – you know, many people in long-term series have that thing where they say, oh, my God, I cannot wait to get out of here. I cannot wait to get away from this person. I'm, like, so done. And we loved each other more and were closer friends by the time the show ended than when the show began. That's really special. And it was really special. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll continue our conversation on Bullseye between Keith Powell and Judith Light after the break. Judith will tell Keith about the intimate connection the cast of Transparent feel with the show's creator, Jill Soloway. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, before we get back to Bullseye, here in the U.S., Tuesday, October 4th, is the only vice presidential debate. And the next morning, the NPR Politics Podcast is inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with them. They'll have new podcast episodes the morning after every debate, so you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class. Whatever your morning routine, make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it the morning of October 5th after the vice presidential debate. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. Support for Bullseye and the following message comes from Blunt Talk, a quirky and outrageous Stars original comedy created by Jonathan Ames and executively produced by Seth MacFarlane. The series follows Walter Blunt, played by Patrick Stewart, a British import intent on conquering the world of American cable news. This season, Blunt is at the top of the network ratings, but he still manages to find himself in some bizarre scenarios, along with his band of dysfunctional newsroom co-workers. Season 2 premieres Sunday, October 2nd at 8.30 p.m. on Stars and the new Stars app. Why would you listen to a podcast of TV pilots that never got made? It must not have been any good, right? I don't know for a fact that anyone read it. They couldn't get the deal done. It was kind of a regime change. Someone at the studio who was in a decision-making capacity said, these guys seem like losers. They just blamed it on, okay, well, it must be women. We got word that USA had decided to stop doing comedy. Why aren't we making this? It was so good. Here are the TV comedies you never got to see. Dead Pilot Society podcast. Listen on MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
Let's get back to the conversation between Emmy-winning actress Judith Light and our guest host this week, Keith Powell. Okay, so let's talk about Transparent now. The creator of the show, Jill Soloway, um, talked about creating a culture of empathy on the set. Um, how does she create that culture on set? Uh, it's where she it's where she comes from as a human being. When her parent came out and she said, I want to do a show that will make the world safer for my parent mm-hmm. and my in quotes audition for her was a 45 minute Skype call I was doing a play here in New York uh, and we just were able to Skype and Jill and I talked about our advocacy and our desire to have a change of conversation in the culture that can actually impact and not just here in this country but also all around the world the content of the show is about the transgender community and brilliant genius Jeffrey Tambor's performance of Maura Pfefferman. Yeah. That is the content that has been struck uh, to start the story. But what happens is that the larger context is to talk about family and how families relate to each other, that there is in in almost everybody has this experience in their family that somebody says, the person you thought I was is not the person that I actually am. And if I tell you who I am, will you still love me if I tell you who? And it's different. It, exactly. And yeah. what courage it takes to do that. What courage it takes to be authentic in this world Yeah, is – it's extraordinary and it's very difficult. And as Freud said over a hundred years ago now, consciousness is an extraordinary event, not an ordinary event. So we all go through the world and I include myself thinking we're conscious and yet these things keep getting revealed to us all the time about how unconscious we actually are and how we bump into each other and how in order to do what you are talking about, which is to create a culture of empathy and a different kind of way of relating to each other, we have to become conscious. We have to wake up. Yeah. We should be looking to our young people yeah. and we should be looking to our more mature people in our cultures. Those are the, the two ends that we need I to – and we need to connect those yeah. uh, because – what the what the young people are talking about now is intersectionality. Yeah. They're talking about the levels and the multi levels of oppression that a person might live with in a way that I've ne- that I'm that honestly I never expected. I never expected our culture to come to. It's it's actually quite beautiful. It's it's them. They are yeah. doing it. They are talking about it. And I will tell you that what's going to start to happen is that I mean I'm, I've been on the board of a, an organization called Point Foundation almost since its inception, and and we give scholarships to. Um, LGBTQ youth, uh, or not always youth, but um, people who are marginalized because of their sexuality or their gender presentation, yeah. and they are the ones that are be- our point scholars are be- are talking to us about this. They are teaching us about how many levels of oppression that people can go through. It, it's it's quite remarkable. I mean, you know, just as a black man, the amount of prejudice and oppression that I've gone through in my life, of course, and. I have friends who have now come out um, as transgender, and 
didn't realize how they were secretly living a life of oppression because it's not readily apparent. Think of that community yeah. and how long they have been in the shadows, how yeah. long they have been closeted. And, you know, the truth is that Herb said this a long time ago. He said everybody has closets that they have to come out of. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the content of that closet is. There's a closet. And if we don't come out of that, I mean, it's harder sometimes for, you know, for straight people to figure out what they have to come out about. Yeah. But we must and we have we have we're only as sick as our secrets and we have things to share with each other that can actually make a difference in someone else's life. And that's the context that Jill Soloway comes from in the work that she's doing yeah. with Transparent because she knows that the culture is this way and has seen the way her parent has has had to wait for so long to become the person that she has wanted to be. And so that's why when Jill says, uh, before we begin, we will take a moment of gratitude that we have each other to work with and people who are there to support us. Yeah. And it's just a, it's, it's a different context. It's a context shift. And on that set, as you asked me before, what's it yeah, like? Yeah, I was going to say, we talked earlier about There is no there is no make wrong. There is no blame. One of the things she talks about is she says, we have enough time. You know how on television shows often or, or films, <laughs> people say, we're, time. we're losing the light. We're losing the light. <laughs> yeah. And Jill says, it's all right. We are the light and we have enough light. And mm. to come from a place like that, to be – I have never felt this free on a set ever in my life. She, you out. can't make a mistake. You can only try something and if it doesn't work, she'll say, mm, let's try something else. You can never – you can never – how – what world do you live in that you can never make a mistake in? Well, that's the transparent world. Judith, I – honestly, it is such a true, true pleasure spending this hour with you. It really has. I, I thank you so much for – for uh, sitting down and talking with me. I, I, I've, I, I'm going to be on cloud nine for the rest of the day. Oh, you are so lovely, and I thank you so much. It's really been a treat. Judith Light was nominated for her second Primetime Emmy Award in 2016 for her role as Shelley Pfefferman on the series Transparent. Season three of Transparent premiered last Friday on Amazon. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. So what's wrong with nostalgia? I mean, kind of a lot, I guess. But sometimes it's right. Did you see Boyhood, the Richard Linklater movie? It's these little moments in a child's life. Shot once a year or so over a dozen or so years. Very beautiful movie, rightly acclaimed. And it ends just as he goes off to college. And you feel so vividly this transitional moment, the possibility in that step off of a cliff, sweet and hopeful and a little sickening too, sort of the enormity of it. Of course, Linklater's best work is these slices, these moments, just their sheer humanness. But Boyhood isn't actually the movie I want to tell you about. You've heard about that. Earlier this year... Linklater put out another movie called Everybody Wants Some, or actually, Everybody Wants Some, with two exclamation marks at the end. Sorry, I'm not good at that. 
It was marketed as a sort of spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused. That's maybe Linklater's most beloved movie. But in a way, Everybody Wants Some is also kind of a sequel to Boyhood. It's fall of 1980. A kid named Jake is starting college. In fact, college hasn't even started yet. He's there a couple days early for baseball workouts. He lives in a house with his new teammates. And honestly, not much happens. But also, everything happens? Act like you've read a book before, jeez. Okay, Finn, you're up. Oh, I can't do any worse. Here we go. Take notes, boys. Excuse me, ladies. You know, I, I couldn't help but notice you ladies being hassled by that in the car back there. It's a shame. You know, some guys are just so aggressive. You know, myself, I'm a firm supporter of the ERA, although I doubt it's going to have an immediate impact on the societal norm of the male gender initiating virtually all contact with prospective females, you know, which might seem predatory on the surface, but I assure you that... Trust me. You should be investing this energy elsewhere. Well, now you just plain hurt our feelings. <laughs> Do you also hate guys that are athletic, intelligent, sometimes endearingly clumsy, or is that just her? Hey, Fit, did you miss... I didn't miss... Of course, he has this pre-built identity, right? Baseball player. But one of the nice things about the movie is that it doesn't let that jockishness define the characters. The special thing about that age, out of high school, not quite a grown-up, is the way that identity moves. You got this person you were in high school, and you got this adult you're going to become, and you're sort of seeing how to bridge that gap. And Jake seems like a really decent dude, and his teammates feel real, like guys you could have known. Different, sometimes a little silly, but that's kind of how it goes. And these guys float through these identities. Sometimes they're the kings of the disco. Sometimes they're standing at the back, not really quite sure what to do at a punk rock concert. Actually, there's this moment that Jake runs into a high school teammate, and it is a perfect illustration of, of, of the grace of Everybody Wants Some. The teammate has gone punk. Jake and the film treat him with absolute respect, like a sort of vibe of... Um, Hey, this seems interesting. What's this old friend up to? Wait, you just wake up one morning? <laughs> nah, man, it's as simple as this. Go to a show, meet a couple of cute girls, get drunk. Later that night, they're chopping bits of your hair off, giving you real bangs. <laughs> Used to, I'd be like, no, don't do that. But now that I don't play on a team anymore or I'm doing anything particularly respectable, I'm like, whatever, man. Mm. Oh, we're going to a show soon. Man, there's six bands in town, some from L.A., some from Austin. We're going to go in a bit. You guys want to join? Uh, we, we've got our party tonight. Yeah, yeah, we should probably like, set up for it, right? That's not till later. Yeah, no, we're just walking around heading to the student center. Student center? Oh, come with us. Come on, we'll fix you up. Are you guys down for that? Yeah. Ben? Of course we're down. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's not a perfect movie by any means. A few bits are kind of on the nose. The romantic interest is a bit of a manic pixie dream girl, if I can borrow my friend Nathan Rabin's trope name. But even that manic pixie dream girl is a vivid enough depiction of a girl from arts high school that I, an arts high school graduate, kind of got the shivers. 
The movie mostly grazes in its own pleasantness. It's funny, really funny, actually. And, and we feel that real fun of being a pretty much but not quite grown-up. The touch is so light, so real, that even when it's a bit on the nose, it connects. There's this bit about college essays. Jake and the girl are swimming in a swimming hole, and somehow it feels totally not cliched that they're doing that. Is this your first choice school? Or... No, I applied to a few, but this is the best school that also offered me a scholarship. You mean you had to, like, write a bunch of essays and all that fun stuff? Just one. Huh? What'd you write about? Well, the topic was to uh, take a Greek myth and relate it to your own life. So you wrote about Aphrodite and being a baseball slut? Kind of. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I just took Sisyphus and baseball. just kind of... You wrote about that for your essay? How did you mm-hmm. even, like, those two things together? Yeah, I did, believe it or not. I mean, the point of the whole thing is that the gods intend for Sisyphus to suffer, right? Right. Well, my (laughs) point was that they'd actually blessed him with something to focus on. Not something that he could potentially find meaning in. And it's a gift to be striving at all, you know, even if it looks Mm -hmm. futile to others. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous to roll a boulder up a mountain over and over and over again, but so is everything else in life. I mean, it is a little on the nose, but I can totally forgive it because ultimately... This movie is about the practice of life. How wonderful things can be if you play and fail and make friends and find love. That's a really nice way to spend an hour and a half. That's my outshot. All right, think about this. There are animals, salmon, spiders, that will literally die in the process of mating. I mean, what are we doing? I mean, we're switching around our wardrobe a little bit. It's camouflage. You stop thinking so much. Dude, look at you, man. You want to talk? I actually don't think that much. I actually don't think at all. I just, you know, I talk a lot. This is jazz improv. You're invited. Listen. That's the Gilligan's Island theme song. Yes, it is. You can make a pump song out of that. Come full circle. come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer, Dan Gallucci, production fellow at Maximum Fund, Kara Hart. Our production assistant, Christian Duenas, senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries, for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture. This week, hosted by academic Oliver Wang. Hey, Oliver, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hi, Jesse. This week, we talked about pop culture comebacks and the Emmy show. So we covered everything from Drew Barrymore's return to the spotlight and debating about whether or not Game of Thrones is winning too much at the Emmys. Sounds hot. Listen to that in your favorite podcast app. It's called Pop Rocket. It's a great show. I really love it. I listen to it. Okay. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.